prism. Without a light source is nothing more than a piece of glass. As long as the light source is dark, there's no color. We often treat light the same way. We operate with a scarcity mindset, assuming there's little light or color to go around. The result is that we limit what we share with the world, dimming our love, our joy, and our true selves. In the Bible, God reveals himself as a prism, a multifaceted God whose fullness is as vibrant as the color wheel. One of those colors is revealed in his name, El Shaddai, which means the unlimited provider. El Shaddai provides everything we need. He is the source of all comfort, unlimited wisdom, bountiful grace. He is the ultimate producer of light and truth. In modern terms, El Shaddai is like unlimited bandwidth, a data stream that can never run out and never slow down. Now imagine if you could tap into that infinite source. How would that affect your mindset? When we have access to a limitless provider, we start living our lives with abundance, generosity, and joy. El Shaddai, the source, casting light into the prism of our lives and producing vibrant color. Well, this morning we are looking at what does it mean to know a God who is an El Shaddai, to which the question comes up, what in the world does that mean anyway? El Shaddai literally means one who nourishes us, or in a more intimate term, it's one who nurses us. And if you remember having your first child, if you remember your wife holding your child for the first time and breastfeeding them, there was a sense of beauty, a sense of wonder, a sense of connection with this with this experience, seeing your wife in a new way, seeing your child in a new way, seeing that intimate connection between a child and a mother. It's one who nurses us. In fact, I heard an old song back in the 80s. I was a radio DJ, and this song was very popular back then. And there was a parody that came out that reminds us how hard it is to understand this kind of stuff. It went something like this. You know, how can I, how can I ever interpret El Shaddai unless I take a Hebrew class? I am not a rabbi. And I think, well, you know, what in the world? There's a lot of Hebrew stuff in there. What in the world does that thing mean? So we're going to unpack what El Shaddai means. What does it mean practically to have someone nourish us or nurse us? Because what El Shaddai does is he offers his God to meet the needs hidden under our abundance. Often as people living in America in the 21st century, we don't feel very needy. And yet God says there are lots of needs hidden under our abundance that he wants to meet. In fact, even I shared a story a few weeks ago. I'll give you an update on it. Uh, we have a team that is going to be going down to Belize. And one of the friends who went down to Belize is uh, one of my neighbors, Michael Horshuk, who several years ago uh, went to Belize for the first time. And while he was there, he admitted to our team before he went that he had a lot of fear. A lot of fear of what might happen, being in a third world country, trying to operate without the right materials. And sure enough, his greatest fears uh, came true as this child was allergic to the anesthesia. And he could have just dropped everything there, but instead he felt compelled by God to work with this little guy, Roberto Chi, Roberto Chi, and he will be coming here to Cincinnati, February 10th to 17th, where because of Michael's uh, work of overcoming his fear and persisting in the midst of challenges, that he's going to get about a $100,000 surgery and a new face and a new life because of persistence and the generosity of our community through Children's Hospital. Isn't that amazing? How God works in the midst of it. This week, we have a group of women who are going down, who have been down working with orphans, and we have got about 74 people going to Belize in a few weeks. And every time people 
from our community go to these different mission trips, they come back and say the same thing. I didn't realize how needy I was. I didn't realize I needed more gratitude. Man, those kids have nothing. They got gratitude. I didn't realize how much lack of contentment I had until I saw how content they were with a little toy. I didn't realize what it meant to really be loved until I actually hugged an orphan who doesn't get loved all the time. Often it's in the midst of our abundance that we forget how much we need respect and love and appreciation and encouragement. And it's these kind of trips that speak to that. Our need for freedom from how people perceive us. El Shaddai does that. The second thing El Shaddai does is it shows us he's an unlimited, he has an unlimited supply to nurse us, to provide for us. And limited in what way? Well, in a lot of ways. For one, I hear people a lot of times say, you know, God must be really busy. He must run out of time to hear everybody's prayers because we think he's limited. Or, hey, God forgave me once and then I got a second chance or maybe a third chance. But this is like my fifth time doing this. God must have run out of chances. He must have run out of forgiveness. He's run out of prayer. Or, hey, I know what it's like to be out of time. And God's a VIP running the universe. He probably doesn't have time for my little requests. I don't really have some VIP requests compared to, like, the universe. Or I run out of patience with my kids, and I run out of patience with my spouse and my colleagues. God probably is running out of patience with me. And all that scarcity mindset speaks to a misunderstanding of just how much resources God has for us. Sometimes my response to thinking God's limited is I decide God doesn't have everything I need, so I better be self-sufficient and take care of myself. Because God's not going to step in. He's not going to provide here. I better, I better figure out how to solve it myself. And I become very self-sufficient and not very dependent upon God. Yet God wants, I think, to have a new relationship with us, a very intimate relationship with us. God says he is the El Shaddai, who is an unlimited bandwidth that can meet the needs that are hidden under our abundance for freedom, for contentment, for peace, for joy, to nourish us. So what does it mean to be a perfect nourisher? Why don't we take it to Minnesota for a moment, for a few minutes? Because a, a Guinness Book of World Records, I think, was, was made a few years ago in Minnesota when a lamb gave birth to not one, not two. Well, I'll let them tell the story. How many lambs this young mother gave birth to? Let's watch. It's tough to raise a family on a farm. Just ask this new mom. The little you is the proud mother of perhaps the largest litter of lambs in North America. Really? There's how many? All right, we'll be out there and see. <laughs> just like, are you, you telling the truth? Because it was crazy to, to have that many at one time. Most polypay sheep give birth to one to three lambs. But this six-year-old now has eight sets of hooves to look out for. I thought the same thing my dad did. Um, they were getting up really fast, and it was just surprising that I've never seen that for the 13 years I've been working here. And I didn't believe it. And then when I got up there, there were just lambs everywhere, and it was just a lot of lambs. Today is also a special day for these six little girls and two little boys, because today is their birthday. Yeah, they were born a week ago today, because it's when they were born, and so... And the fact that they've made it for a full week, because every day you come out here going, is everyone still okay? Are they still all right? And yeah, they're all here, they're all doing good. It's, it's really nice, too. And the family isn't feeling sheepish, because it's the biggest litter the farm has ever lambed. Pretty exciting. I never dreamt you could have that many lambs. To say that she's a, a prolific you would probably be a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> no ifs, ands, or lambs about it. In Truman, Cassandra Cepeda, KUYC, News 12. 
octuplets as a lamb. Now, I want to help you because we don't live in a, an agricultural community. I grew up in one. But I want you to take you back because God is revealing himself to the business community. But primarily, these are, these are farmers. These are herders. So when God reveals himself as El Shaddai, imagine you're a herder and you've just had a lamb that's given birth to eight octuplets. What is your concern about the mom? One, that she survived the process. But two, can she provide for all of her lambs? Oh my goodness, does she have what it takes as a mother to provide for all of these children? So it's into that business mindset that God reveals himself as El Shaddai. He says, El, I am the God, that's what El means. Shad, I'll get to that in a second, and then die. If you've ever been to a, a Jewish Passover service, they sing a song called Die, Die, Anu, Die, Die, Anu, which means God, it would have been enough. So literally, it's El God, Shad, I'll get to that in a second, has enough. Now the word Shad literally means breast. God, the many-breasted one, is what El Shaddai means. So we're like, oh my goodness. Again, this was a business term used to farmers to say, God is the mother, God is the supplier who has plenty of ways to provide for her children. He has enough. He has enough wisdom. He has enough comfort. He is almighty God, the one who can provide for your needs. Now, if God came today, he might use a different business analogy to communicate to a group that doesn't necessarily hurt animals. He might use terms like this. He might say, I am the unlimited power supply. He might say, I am the uh, fuse box that never runs out of fuses. I am the, the, the multi-pronged outlet. I am the T1 line. I am the unlimited route, limitless router. I am the renewable source. I am the supply chain that never goes, goes dim. I am the renewable energy that never runs dry. It's the same idea that God has all of the resources that you and I need. And he's going to reveal himself to three people, very wealthy people in the Bible, who all have needs hidden under their abundance. These are not three business owners who would say, yeah, I really think of myself as one nursing it from God. Yet they will find that God meets needs underneath their abundance, and they find that being in that kind of intimate relationship with God as their supplier actually makes them stronger and makes them better. Our first one is Abraham. Abraham encounters El Shaddai and overcomes a sense of hopelessness with faith. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Let's pick up the story. Abram was 99 years old. 99. When the Lord appeared to Abram, he has no kids at this point. And God says to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. He's 99, has no kids. As I joked last week, he's the only guy who's going to be uh, buying pampers and depend undergarments at the same time. If he has a child. And he's mad at God for not providing an heir. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. No, it's too late. The dream is gone. Not a chance. He laughs. And he said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 99 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, take, our, take Ishmael. The, take my stepson. Let's just make him be the, the heir. Let's make him be the, the one of promise. That I might live before you. Now, it's interesting because if you don't know much about Abraham, he's very, very wealthy, very, very influential. He has a very successful life. Yet in this brief little passage, we see that underneath that are some needs, some insecurity about his marriage, some insecurity about his age. Though he's supposed to be a man of great faith, he's doubting God could really do what he's going to do with this body at this time. So underneath his wealth, Underneath his success, 
There's problems in his marriage. His dream has died that he'll ever have a family. He almost is scared to dream again that it could really happen. God, it's just too late. Just let it go. In this brief little encounter, we see that God says, no, I am the El Shaddai. I want to meet those needs, those dreams you think have died, those challenges in your marriage, all that difficulty of 70-plus years of being barren and how that's affected your relationship with your wife. I want to meet you in the midst of that. You see, Abram is not known as a man of great works. As we talked a few weeks ago, he was a bit of a scoundrel. He was known as a man of great faith because he trusted that God could nourish him and do something in him that he could not do on his own. You ever met somebody with great faith? I mean, their circumstances are really bad, maybe. But they've got great faith. And you want to say to them, what about all the bad stuff happening in your life? Or have you seen this test report? Or or, have you seen this medical report? Explain that. Or you say something like, have you ever heard about the problem of evil? And you sort of give them the philosophical problem of evil. And yet they have this incredible faith. They're trusting something that's greater than their circumstances. And there's something about that. Even if you don't believe what they believe, you're attracted to that confidence, that faith in the midst of hopelessness. The basis of every great relationship is trust, isn't it? The same thing's true. God says, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. Every great marriage is built on trust. Hey, your husband's going out of town. Are you worried about that? No, no, I trust him. You talk to a teenager and say, hey, your dad's a couple hours late picking you up. Well, my dad's always on time. I trust him. There must be a good reason. Your teenagers come home late and I say, hey, they're not home by curfew. Hey, they walk in the door and you say, hey, I know you've got a good reason why you'd be late because I trust you. <laughs> Every good relationship is built on trust. And what God wants from you, more than obedience, because, see, you can obey somebody you don't trust. But if you trust somebody, you trust that the reason they give you instructions, the reason they're there for you, is for your good. God wants trust. And for Abraham, he says, Abraham, I want you to trust me that I can meet the needs hidden under your abundance, even at 100 years old. I read the story of a CEO from uh, Wright Industries. His name is Douglas Vaughn, but he wasn't born Douglas Vaughn. He was actually born Dorical Caesar. He was a uh, servant, an indentured servant, a slave, really, in Haiti in a culture where you'd sell off your children to be provided for in other families, but really you're mistreated, you're malnourished, you're not fed, you live literally in the corner. Well, he was a very, very hard worker, and he went from starving to death to being adopted by a, a minister there. But even in that culture, even the ministers still adhere to, he's treated better than he was before, but still pretty much an indentured servant who lived in the corner. A family came along in their 60s to visit this minister, and, and they saw this really hardworking Haitian immigrant, or not immigrant, a slave really, and they, they said, we'd like to adopt him. And they gave him a new name. They changed his name from Dorilico Caesar to Douglas C. is his old last name, Caesar Vaughn. And they brought him to America and they gave him a new name. He became an heir to them. At 60 years old, they're adopting. And he speaks now as the owner of the CEO of this supply company, an office supply company, how God worked in their faith. By even at that age, adopting him, giving him an opportunity, giving him a new name. Now, his faith in Christ is one of the most important things he has found. And here's a guy, you see him there, and you're like, wow, the CEO, looks, he's looking good, looks like a typical you know, upper-middle-class, upper-class guy. He looks fine. Little would you know that underneath all that abundance is a little Haitian slave that needed somebody else to choose to adopt him and to give him a new name, a new opportunity. 
Yet that's what God says to us. He comes to us and we're enslaved to our impulses. We're enslaved to our reputation. We're enslaved to our need for, for, for status. And God says, I can adopt you and give you a new name. And I can meet needs for freedom, for identity, for purpose. That, that you don't, nobody would, would look at you and think you even have, but they are under your abundance and I want to do that for you. So that's Abraham. Our second wealthy landowner that we find in the Bible is a man named Boaz. And Boaz also meets El Shaddai, but in a very unique way. He doesn't overcome hopelessness with faith. He overcomes success with significance. He has success, very, 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 very successful, but he's going to overcome that as God calls him into significance. If you've never read the book of Ruth, it starts off by telling us about Naomi. Naomi is a mother, and her husband was a businessman, but because of a great famine in Bethlehem, they had to run out of town to Moab, where they had to start another farm. And in the midst of it, they've been gone from their hometown, which she's sort of angry at God about. They had to leave their friends she's a little angry about. And she's going to get angry because then her husband dies. But she has two sons as a mother. mother. Her, her two sons marry two Moabite women, Orpha and, uh, and Ruth. And then both of her sons die. And the broken heart of a mother who has lost her business, her friends, her two sons, and her husband speaks to God as El Shaddai. Here's what she says, and she's not happy. She comes back to Bethlehem, where her friends are, because she's lost everything, and she says, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. For the El Shaddai, that nursing mother in the sky, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and I've come back empty. Why do you call me pleasant, since the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has afflicted me. Now that's an honest prayer right there. And the editor kept it in the Bible. As if you and I can be free to be angry at God. And here is a nursing mother who knows what it's like to nurse two children saying, I know what it's like to be a good mom. And I tell you, that El Shaddai in the sky has no idea how to take care of me. And into that story, something amazing will happen. Because when she moves back to Bethlehem, our second character is a man named Boaz. And Boaz will be running a very successful business in the midst of a famine, saving lots and lots of jobs, really rescuing the entire community because of the way he manages this particular farm in a way that is incredibly generous, respectful, manages people. And here's what will happen. God will be El Shaddai to Naomi through this wealthy landowner named Boaz, through Ruth, one of her her daughter-in-law who continues to care for her. And imagine, I mean, your mother-in-law might be tough. Imagine your mother-in-law changing her name to Bitter. (laughs) I'd be out of there. Ruth stays with Naomi and continues to actually provide for her emotionally and financially. She becomes the very source of of God's El Shaddai through Ruth to Naomi. And God will be El Shaddai through Boaz to Naomi as well. And God will begin to provide for Naomi through the people in her life. Now, let me jump over to Boaz for a second. Boaz, it says here in the text, was a relative of Naomi's husband, one who'd passed away, a man of great wealth. This is a very wealthy man in the Bible from the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Now, if you saw Boaz, you'd see his resume, you'd see him on a magazine cover, you'd say, that guy's got it all, that guy's got no needs. But again, what we're going to find out in the text is that he has lots of needs hidden under his abundance. Yes, he has money. Yes, he has influence. Yes, he has success. 
But we're going to find underneath that is a longing for love, some insecurity about his age, wondering, like, who's really your friend based on who you are, not just wanting something from you? Who likes me because of me, not because of my paycheck? All of that begins to be unveiled. And here's what happens. God is going to meet Naomi's needs through Boaz, and God's going to meet Boaz's needs through Ruth in a very powerful way as the story unfolds. So Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose side I might find favor. So what happened is Boaz would always leave the corners of his field open. He would say, don't harvest the corners of the field. I want the poor to be able to come. They'd have to work for it, but they would work and they would harvest. So he always kept his fields, so he was giving away percentages of his income to provide for the poor, which brought him great joy. So Ruth comes in and she begins to glean and she gets all this abundance of food. She comes home and says, look, Naomi, God's providing for us. And Naomi's faith begins to go, well, maybe God doesn't hate me. Maybe God is still available. Maybe I could trust him a little bit. And over months and months and months of God providing through Boaz and his generosity, through Ruth who's gleaning to Naomi, Naomi's faith begins to be reinstored. She begins to believe there might be a mother in the sky who can care for her, who can love her as a mom. Meanwhile, Ruth and Boaz start falling in love. Because Boaz sees a woman who's not about money. She doesn't love him for his paycheck. She... Loves him for who he is. But, but he knows that she's way too young for him. She would never be interested in him. He's just too old. He's past his prime. Look what happens. She basically proposes to him in a later chapter, chapter 3, and says, Then Boaz responds to Ruth, initiating this tradition of marriage, and says, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, as most of the other women do. Whether rich or poor, you went for who looked prettier. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you're a virtuous woman. He says, you're a woman of character. And you could have anyone, young, old. And most of the women go for the younger men. And in that, we get to see the needs, a little, little glimmer into Boaz's life. The needs hidden under his abundance. He's insecure about his age. Notice the mention about rich or poor. See, the problem with having wealth and influence is you always wonder who your real friends are. Who's dating your daughter because she's your daughter? And who's dating your daughter because she's related to your family? There's that kind of fear. There's that kind of like, oh, who would do that? And here, for the first time, Boaz is going to experience real love. Somebody who cares for him, not because of who he is as a wealthy landowner, but for who he is as a man. And they will get married. In fact, it's Boaz and Ruth and their child will be born. And that will, Naomi will come back to faith and say, well, a child isn't born to Naomi because it's a granddaughter. And her faith in God's restored that God truly is and El Shaddai. But in the midst of that, what's so powerful about this story is that Boaz goes from running a successful business to running a significant business. Because now he begins to see all the people in his life as an opportunity to be El Shaddai to them. That God might be working through me, in my friends, in my employees to impact them. What would it look like in your life if you began to, to do your ordinary life but began to say, what if every person I interact with is somebody God wants to work through me to love, to comfort, to give wisdom to, to care for? What if that mindset applied to everything we did? You, it's not that you change a lot of what you're doing, but you bring a sense of significance to everything you're doing. You're not just doing business, you're doing God's business. Heard a story a few weeks ago, saw a video of a guy named Bryant. 
He's a CEO of a company called Nature Suite. He began to experience what Boaz did, which is what if I began to see people that I work with the way you see them? And it totally revolutionizes business while growing it. Let's watch. of the fresh tomato industry driven through unleashing the power of people. And we said, we want this company to grow by 300% within five years. And so we looked at options. We can buy a lot more land, we can build a lot more greenhouses, or we could go back to the people that we have, we have 5,000 people and say, you know what, why don't we come to you and give you the training that you need to create the possibility where There's still a mindset of, well, I just need somebody that's going to pick this thing off the crop and then get it down to the grocery store. It's not thought of as, you know, there, there's somebody who can have a real skill at this, just like a machinist would have a skill at something. And we said, if we ever really want to grow this business, we're going to have to shift how we're thinking about those people. I was so ill-equipped to understand what was next. And so a lot of things went wrong. The leadership that was inside of the greenhouse began to pursue this productivity, and we didn't have the right leadership. We hadn't taught people how to supervise. And so we needed to create leaders of these people that were now chasing this productivity and chasing this freedom. And at the time, we had a turnover in absenteeism rate of 15% per month. That migrant culture that had existed, that has a devastating economic impact on those people. And what shifted was saying, no, I think you have unlimited potential. And you can make more money, you can be skilled at what you do, and you can really have a career here. Then it was back to, we've got to go back and figure out how to grow the revenues by 300%. And that has happened. The company has grown that much. After six years of this commitment to unleashing the power of people, our turnover and absenteeism, it's not a business issue anymore. We just don't have turnover. We want to work here. If I look at a human being and I go, well, what are they worth? And I say, God made himself into a man and he paid everything for it. Then that's the value of human being. And what I learned through business is it's to my detriment that I don't value people in the same way that God values every single human being. Whether or not we succeed is not my call. It's who are we going to be in the midst of all of that that's important and that he's interested in. I would rather fail at this than succeed at anything else. I love that last line. I'd rather fail at this than succeed at anything else. What are people worth? If Jesus, if God sent Jesus to die for each individual person, then every person I interact with is that valuable. What would it look like to interact with our life thinking everyone we see is that valuable? That's what Boaz found. 
And that's what he found as well. Our third and final character is that of Job. And this is the one that's most convicting to me because this is the one that I most realize I don't have God as that El Shaddai relationship in my life the way he wants to. If you don't know the story of Job, Job, again, is a very successful man, very successful business, and loses everything in a very short period of time. I mean everything. Business, money, children. Terrible, terrible day. Horrible, horrible experience. He and his wife survive, but their marriage is in struggle in the midst of it. And despite their wealth, despite their reputation, they got a lot of needs hidden under their abundance. But one of the most hidden need is self-sufficiency. Because Moses, I mean, Jonah, try it again, Job will come face to face with God, and God will speak to him as El Shaddai. And here's what he says. Moreover, the Lord, Yahweh, answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends or wrestles with El Shaddai correct me? You really think... Because you call the shots in life, that you can call the shots on me, that you know better than me how to run the world. You know better than me how to run life. You think you can correct me. You think you can rebuke me. Could you explain to me why you, little man, feels like you can rebuke me, mighty God? Good point. And yet, often when we become successful, when we're good leaders, when we're confident, it's that self-sufficiency that turns quickly into an arrogance. But it's a type of arrogance that's a real problem. It's certainly one for me. The arrogance is this. The self-sufficiency usually is what made us successful. And the same self-sufficiency that made us successful is the same self-sufficiency that keeps us from connecting with God who wants us to surrender. Because we don't want to be a nursing baby to God that's almost beneath us. We're self-sufficient people. Yet God comes and he, he challenges us. He says, are you really walking through your day with a sense that you don't need me? Then you're deluding yourself. And often it takes very harsh circumstances to remind us how much we need God. I have had one of the most ruthless last three months, and the last eight weeks in particular have just been ruthless. Every day we've had some thing at our house break, fall apart, be destroyed. Ever since Christmas Eve, it's not related to Christmas Eve, I don't think. It might be eight services. I don't think it was, truly. Um, my back just has not worked. So I, mean, I literally have been in constant pain until the last week. And so that has just colored everything to the point in which little things became bigger things. I was having what I can only describe as fear fantasies, saying things like I'm not going to make it, and then hearing things like you're not going to make it, and just constant. The pain, the, the sort of what's broken today, what's the problem today, what's the difficulty today. And I tell you what that's done for me in the last eight weeks, in the last three weeks even more, is a lot more praying, a lot more I need help. God, I need you to protect my stuff. I need you to protect my, my, my marriage. I need you to protect uh, my health. I need you to help me. Give me the strength today. Because it's amazing. You use your back for an awful lot, it turns out. And what's amazing to me is though I would have said I was a prayer, praying person, I have really become a praying person. And often, even if you don't believe in God or you're not sure if God gets involved, it's amazing how tragedies will suddenly take a, a person who wasn't a praying person and say, I need an access to a wisdom, a power greater than myself. That self-sufficiency became the, the false security that kept you from realizing how much you need God. So last weekend I wasn't here because part of my wife and I creating a system to create some relief is we tried to take a weekend and go away for a couple of days so that we could have just time away from all the challenges and, and just sort of relax a bit. And it was great. Two days of just like, oh. 
and lots of praying and God, you know, replenishing and helping. And I definitely feeling it was feeling less like a warrior and more like a nursing child. Oh, God, I need you. I need replenish. need help. 530 in the morning, we get a phone call. A lady we don't know saying, I'm a nurse. I just pulled your son out of a car. Uh, he was blacked out. The ER is on its way. I think he's going to be okay. And uh, I live on this road, Beechwood, that like has just enough asphalt to color the white line, but not an inch more. So if you happen to go on this real turning road, just a couple inches off the white line, I mean, you fall into an eight-inch rut, which is what happened to my son on his way to school. And that rut then steered him into a, uh, not the gully that could have been, or the gully after it, but into a, a big mound and uh, totally destroyed his car and uh, we couldn't get, there's no way to get from Denver to Cincinnati um, within 15 hours. So it actually took 20 hours by the time we flew back. And meanwhile, we're ERs and this kind of stuff. And in the midst of that, I'd return home and I'd get to see the condition of his car. You'll see in just a second. And in those moments, you suddenly feel very dependent upon God's protection. When you're this many miles away, friends who are going to show up and be the voice and be the comfort and you just feel helpless. And there's nothing worse than self-sufficient people feeling helpless. And yet you start realizing how deluded we are that we think we're really control as much stuff as we do. I remember going to the, to the tow truck place to see the car and realizing my son didn't have any broken bones. He had a concussion, but he didn't have any stitches. And just being so humbled that my son would survive. I thought, as I looked at this car, I thought, my, my son almost died here. And yet also a confidence in God that he's the one that nourishes, that he's the one that protects, that he's the one that's in control. And I'm not as in control as I think I am. As they say, there's no atheists in foxholes. There's also rarely agnostics in the ditches of life, of parenting and other challenges. You start realizing just how dependent you are upon God. Self-sufficiency is a real problem. I think it's a problem that speaks and comes out of our, our strengths as a people, as a community. C.S. Lewis has a challenge, and, and here's the way I've worded it in my own heart as I've been working through this. It's, it's a difference between I need you, God, versus God, you need me. It's a subtle sort of pride that says, well, I'm a successful person. God's lucky to have me on his side. <laughs> you wouldn't say it out loud, but that's really what happens in my heart. You say it. And it's a difference between I need you versus you need me. C.S. Lewis addresses it in his book, uh, God in the Dock. I'll share a little bit more than I did the other day. The greatest barrier I have met is a total, almost total absence from the mind of the audience in today's society of any sense of guilt that we do anything wrong. The early Christian preachers would assume in their hearers, whether religious or pagan, some sense of guilt. We have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis that they have a problem before we can expect them to welcome the good news of the re- remedy, forgiveness. See, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern person, the roles are quite reversed. I am the judge. God is in the dock, receiving my judgment on what he has or has not done. You see, pride, says C.S. Lewis, is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride is concentration on self. And here's why it's so insidious. It hides itself as a strength, self-sufficiency, and yet it can be dripping with pride. 
One of the greatest ways that pride demonstrates itself is through religion. Because religion is all about you being a good person. What is that? It's a concentration on self. Look at all my prayers. Look at my good works. Look at my generosity. So some of the most proud people are religious people. Because religion becomes an unsmiling, sleepless concentration on yourself. Versus the Bible is about something totally different. It's not about you being a good person. That's pride. It's about God being a good person. It's about God giving you his righteousness. It's about God giving you a right standing with him. It's about God giving you his peace. It's about I am not who I'm supposed to be, but God is who he's always said he would be. And as you transition from religion to the gospel, grace, the message of the Bible, you begin to take your eyes off what you're doing and you put your eyes on what he did. And that's when the penny drops. Christianity isn't a religion. And you get freed from self-righteousness and self-sufficiency because you realize you're not adequate enough to be in God's presence. You need him to be adequate for you. Now, ironically, if religion is not a weird way to find pride, another weird place to find pride is through inferiority. People who have a bad self-image you would say, well, I don't have to struggle with pride. I have a bad self-image. Well, what is pride, according to C.S. Lewis? An unsmiling concentration on yourself. So people who have a bad self-image usually have one of the most insidious forms of pride. Your unsmiling concentration on yourself. Look what I did. Look what I didn't do. Look how I look. Look how I don't look. Look what I didn't accomplish. Look at how other people feel about me. And you would say, no, I don't I'll struggle with pride. I struggle with, with self-condemnation, which is pride and unsmiling concentration on yourself. You don't want a good self-image. You need God's image of you. Don't build your image on what you look like or what you've done. You're never going to be secure. But if you build your image on how God feels about you, you find something real, something worthwhile. You find hidden under the abundance is this need for an identity that can be anchored in something real and true. That's what the gospel, that's what the Bible offers. It overcomes fear. It overcomes insecurity because you're rooted finally in something that matters. So I began to look at what does pride sound like in my life. Here's the inner dialogue that goes on in my head when I found myself being self-sufficient. Am I getting what I deserve here? Am I getting the appreciation due me in my marriage? Did that person treat me right? How do I look? How will this make me look? How do I compare to him or her? Got to take care of myself. There's no one else. It's the fear of having enough, of being enough, of doing enough, and having access to enough. And though I have a lot... There's a fear underneath it all. Pride is the carbon dioxide of the soul. You can't see it, you can't smell it, but you go to bed and it kills you. It's the pastor who turned to his wife and says, Honey, how many great preachers do you know? And she says, One less than you think. And I think one of the greatest things that God may want, that he's doing in my life, and I want to do in yours, is to work on your self-sufficiency and overcome with surrender. There's an old poem, I guess, or story told called Putting God on Trial, The Great Silence. It goes like this. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringingly, but with cringing shame, but with belligerence against God. Can God judge us? How can he do that? He doesn't know anything about suffering, snapped a young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. 
Another group, a black boy, lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. Another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he'd permitted in the world. How lucky was God to live in heaven with all the sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in the world? God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, an African-American, a person from Hiroshima, and a horribly deformed arthritic. In the center of the vast plain, they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God would be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family thinks he's out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then, let him die so there can be no doubt he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader pronounced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sons. See, that spirit of judging God is that God came to be the kind of El Shaddai who has felt everything we felt. The Bible also describes him as a great high priest. He's the unlimited bandwidth that can meet all of the needs hidden under our abundance to overcome our fear overcome our hopelessness overcome our need for significance and even overcome our need for surrender through self-sufficiency so I just want to give us a few minutes as we conclude to share with God to invite God to be your El Shaddai to do that though we've talked about what if God's not the prison what if we're the prison and what if the light of his El Shaddai begins to shine through us what would it look like for the rainbow of colors to appear in our life. All of a sudden, instead of being controlled by fear of our reputation or how we look, instead of having success but not significance, what about having the new light of God as our El Shaddai in our life? What colors might come into our heart? What colors might come into our, our marriages, into our relationships? What would it look like if we saw God as our source? If we were more dependent upon Him for wisdom? How much more humble would we be? How much less self-righteous would we be? How would the different colors of the rainbow begin to fill our community, our companies, as we saw every person as inherently valuable? See, God wants to shine the light into our hearts so He can fill our lives with color. I want to give you a chance to maybe invite God first to overcome fear and hopelessness. I'll lead you through a prayer. We come to look at the screen. Maybe one of those fears jumps out at you. The fear of failure. The fear of the unknown. So if you want to bow your heads with me, or if you want to look at the screen, if that's helpful, and just say, God, I want you to overcome fear in my life. 
the fear that people don't know about because I look so abundant on the outside. Maybe the second color, I'll put another list up on the screen, is things are going well for you right now. But you have a sense that you'd like to move from success to significance. And you want to ask God for wisdom there. God, how can I help comfort the hurting around me? Who is that? How can I help fill up and heal the bitterness? Because I feel like I'm Naomi. How do I find a grander vision for my life? Just take a moment and ask God for wisdom to move from success to significance. third one might be the hardest because it's real convicting it's hard to see pride and maybe you want to confess or admit your self-sufficiency your greatest strength but also your greatest weakness maybe it's come through good works through identifying yourself and your reputation or maybe it's through the inferiority of self-hatred and you want to say god i want to surrender Father, we live lives sometimes of quiet desperation and we need the color of, of your life in us, through us and with us. And we just invite you to remind us how needy we are, God, that we would walk in surrender to you and you would fill us with humility and joy and peace. Fill us with the colors that we long for. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the book of 1 Peter summarizes this idea. It says, if you lay aside malice and deceit and hypocrisy, then be like a newborn baby who craves the pure milk of the word. God wants us to have, just like those little lambs and, and their mother, to crave growth, to crave who he is, and that comes through the Bible. Thanks for being here today as we studied and looked at El Shaddai. If you came prepared to give us some offering boxes on the way out, if you enjoyed the, 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 the series we did four weeks ago on January 3rd about the Bema Seat of Christ, just want to remind you that tonight at 6 p.m. we're going to have, show that video, an hour-long video of what it looks like to be at that reward banquet. And then uh, we're going to have some worship band there as well, and also a time to answer Q&A on what really does it mean to get rewarded for living this life. Thanks for being here. If you plan on being here tonight, we'll see you at 6 o'clock. If not, we'll see you next week.